Expedition 44 here with Matt and Ryan and one of our favorite people in the whole world. We have been doing a series on the church and I would like to say that we were strategic in uh, having this gentleman launch this book in unison with our series on the church, but it didn't quite go that way, but we're still extremely excited about how it all matches up and I love it when God does things like this. So Matt, introduce our guest to our audience for us. Yeah, we're super excited to have uh, Dr. Scott McKnight back on the show. He was with us um, over a year ago to talk about a church called Tove, and he has a new book out called Pivot, um, which is very much in the same vein as Church Called Tove. We're really excited to talk to uh, Dr. McKnight about this. Um, if uh, you didn't tune into that last episode a year ago, uh, we kind of gave Scott's credentials, but he's, haven't you written something like 90 books, Dr. McKnight? Well, my like wife that. keeps track of them. And I think she said the other day that there's, a, I think it's a, o, over a hundred now. So wow. that's, that's impressive. <laughs> um, Dr. McKnight is a professor at Northern Seminary in Illinois. And um, just uh, really love all of your work. Um, I have here, I've been reading his second Testament, which is oh, his cool. translation cool. of the new Testament that came out pretty recently. I've been enjoying that a lot. Um, so welcome back on. We're really excited to, to have you back um, as a returning guest, Dr. McKnight. Well, thank you. Thank both of you for inviting me back. It's good to be here. So most of our listeners, watchers, readers, in some case, know that you are one of our go-to people. And so uh, when when we start kind of researching a topic, we typically kind of joke that we start with Scott McKnight. Part of the reason is because you have 100 books, but part of the reason is it's just because we've always felt like you've had a really great handle on the lens of the Bible and how it all fits together, more so than most theologians. I think most theologians kind of have their niche or they fit here or there, but we've always felt like, boy, you've just had a, a great handle on all things biblical. And, and to that, we've given you a lot of credit. And that's, I, I think most of the watchers, readers, listeners on our show, they would probably say the same thing. And so in that mindset, we just loved your church called Tove. And Pivot is very much in the same vein, a slightly different angle we've we've kind of phrased the second half of our church series that we're in the middle of right now of reimagining church and that's essentially what pivot is about is reimagining church helping people to walk that that journey that they're in what motivated you and your daughter Laura to kind of write the follow up to a church called Tove and what, what was the mindset of, of kind yeah. of putting the two books together? Did you, from the beginning, was it two books or three books? Or are you going to do a whole series on it? Where, where, how did it come about and how did you get there? Well, that's a good question. And it certainly wasn't a, a mindset from the beginning because I fought writing a church called Tove. My, I, I often said my daughter was a pest about it. <laughs> um, partly because I was working on the book of Revelation at the time and I, I wrote a book that came out now, Revelation for the Rest of Us. But um, so I kind of came in kicking and dragging my feet 
uh, when we did a church called Tove. But it uh, it was one of those kinds of books that was a life, you could say it was a life changer, a life impactor, in that suddenly we were getting one story after another. In the first 15, 16 months, we got between three and five stories a week about power abuse in churches. So um, it was all of a sudden we're talking about this all the time. Then um, in talking about Tove, we were constantly asked, most common question, what can, uh, let's just say you're you're in a normal church or you're a normal person in a church, which means you're not a pastor. Um, the question was, what can I do if I recognize that my church is toxic, what can I do about it? So I began to answer that question. I began to think about it and uh, ponder how we can take Tove and put it into a church when it's not the leaders trying to do it, it's someone else. And that led to more and more uh, questions about the same topic. And finally, I said to Laura one day, uh, she asked, you know, should we write another book? And I said, I, I really do think we have some some more things to say. So we talked to the publisher, and they were a little bit slow, dragging their feet a bit, uh, getting us on track. As a result, Laura didn't get to participate in the writing process the same way she had with Tove. And uh, so I had to kind of knock out the chapters during a uh, late summer and into the early fall and get her help on the weekends uh, once she started teaching. So at, at that point, it was, a, it was a matter of organizing the book. And this is the odd thing is I probably told Laura 20 times that I think we could begin this book with any of the chapters. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and there, it's, it's a network of things rather than a process. Uh, first, this, this, you know, Tove was in the proper order. And, uh, but we had a good editor who said, well, I think you can group your topics into priorities, practices, and powers. And you know, there was you kind of flip the theology between the two books, theology at the front of one and theology at on the backside yeah. of the other one. All right. Now, this is, this is a good question because theologically, I wanted to start there. <laughs> with the theology, but we felt like in this book, it didn't quite work. Uh, it was practical, and starting with theology, it seemed to bog down. Uh, so uh, it was almost like, these are the things you need to work on, but you've got to understand, if you're going to work on character, power, being an example, building a coalition, you're only going to be able to do this if you trust in God's grace, if God's spirit is upon you, if you're following uh, the life of Jesus, if the if the culture in your church is healthy. So uh, it was a little bit of a climactic uh, theological reading rather than a foundational theological reading. And we had, we had already covered some of that stuff in Tove. So, but it was simply uh, in a sense, it was the first one was a little bit more theory. Here's here's the problem, and this is a big picture. And pivot is these are some practical steps you can take to start moving in the direction 
of a church that is transformed into a Tove culture. Yeah, it's great. Um, I like right at the beginning, you kind of give like Oak Hills Church as an example of this. You talked a little bit about Oak Hills Church the last time that you were on here. Um, and do you really look at how they change from a attractional model to kind of a spiritual formation model? Um, talk a little bit about why that's important, why spiritual formation is, you know, sometimes not even emphasized in your seminary yeah, training yeah. for pastors. Yeah. Matt, that's a good question. Um, well, first of all, Mike Lucan was a student of mine who was one of the authors and it was a pastor at that church. And I need to write Kent and find out. I don't think Kent was, but he may have been. Uh, I, they may have met in seminary, but I don't think they did. But uh, so I read Mike's book when it came out. I believe he sent it to me or the publisher did, and I really liked it. And then when this book came out, I said to Laura, we need to have an example of a really good church. So I bought another copy of Mike Lucan and Kent Carlson's book, and I sent it to my daughter, and I said, Laura, this is your assignment. You read this book, and you tell this story. So she wrote all the stuff about renovation of the church. I mean, I had read it. I've read the book twice, but I passed that on to her. That gave her sort of an assignment of some things to work on. Um the key about the church is, number one, they went through the process. And they in their book, Renovation of the Church, they are transparent and they're honest about what they learned, what they did wrong, and what, they, what turned out right. The second thing is they really had a large platform that they wanted to transform from a successful, attractional model church based upon Willow Creek, and they're not critics of Willow Creek. but And they realized through listening to Eugene Peterson, Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, that they were focusing on the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So they decided to make a change. So there's nothing in the book that's like a scandal uh, that we've got to change. It was simply a decision that our church is moving in one direction. We want to move it in another direction. So it became for us perfect example of the sort of thing we're looking for and to show that this can actually happen. Um, and, and I can tell you that one of the authors said to me, I wish we had pivot when we started. Mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have made some of the mistakes we made. Yeah. So, and I would say we couldn't have written pivot without your book. Uh, so, so it, we, we've helped one another in this process but I think it's a really good model of what churches can go through when they're not facing a crisis, but they just make a theological decision, um, a spiritual formation decision, however you want to call it, that we need to go in a different direction. And this is what it looks like when you try to make these kinds of changes in your church. And they lost about half the congregation, half the money, half the employees, and uh, they were prepared for that and they were okay with that you mentioned in another one of your book i think it was pastor paul that only 12 percent of pastors enjoy discipleship and matt and i are really really keen on discipleship in terms of our gifting like in, involved we go to the same church and like we would both say like that's what we do is we want to disciple but i think that's extremely rare i was meeting with a really good friend of mine that 
pastors what I call the mega church in our area. And I said, what's your biggest struggle? And I, you know, that was kind of his answer is, you know, where, and, and people define discipleship differently, but I think it's unfortunate uh, that most, most people that are kind of defining mm -hmm. what's happening at churches would identify as discipleship as sort of the hardest thing to do when it seems to be the imminent calling of the New Testament. Well, there you go. Um, we've got a systemic problem in the church when only 12, I don't remember that number, but I mean, <laughs> I, I thought, I thought it was lower than that. <laughs> so, but uh, you're probably right. Um, 12% of pastors enjoy discipling because the model of a pastor is preaching a sermon on Sunday morning yeah. and attracting a big audience. And that is where the American church is today. And as a result, our the church in the United States is weak. So I, I agree with you that, um, that that's, that's a problem and we need to work on it. And I think the the solution is we need we need to have pastors whose primary responsibility, like Eugene she Peterson used to always say, is to be a spiritual director. Yeah. Now that's what he called it. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. Spiritual director is not that different than a disciple a discipler, um, but it's it means it's intensive in that you have to work with individual people um, over time and struggle with them as they struggle along and that's and i think then if you build you know this is navigators this is campus crusade this is intervarsity if you build um if you let's say disciple people you will also be discipling them on how to disciple people because they will pick up intuitively in a culture that this is how it works and then they will be able to disciple others, and then it can expand in a church. And that's cultural transformation right there. And that's mm -hmm. what we would we told one person after another when they were a disempowered, unempowered, no-powered people, uh, what can we do? And we said, form a pocket of Tove and start practicing Tove in that group and see if what happens. It, give it some years and see if you can make a change. I will say that, I mean, Matt and I have really been thinking this way for many years. I mean, five, six, seven years at least. And uh, I've church planted two churches and always said, you know, we're going to start start where we should start, which is discipleship. But I think the rest of mainstream American churches just haven't thought that way. And it was actually talking to this other pastor this morning. It was really reaffirming to see what I, again, what I call mega church pastor, like he's saying, that's what we're going after right now. And I think the reason is 10 years ago, that wasn't the case, but I think books, books like this are really what is, what is questioning and reshaping American churches. At least that's my hope. Yeah. Well, I hope you're right. And I, and I, I think you're right. I hope you're right about our book, yeah. but um, uh, a mega church model to start working on discipling also, it cuts against what they're actually doing, yeah. and it adds to what they're doing, and it will require um, a change in personnel and a transformation of personnel. But it's possible for it to work, and it's going to take a long time. Yep. yep. It's not going to happen overnight. 
So let's dig a little bit into some of the chapters in your book. Um, at, at the very beginning, you kind of use this analogy of soil and use a, a metaphor of a, a peach tree. Um, can you speak to that a little bit and how that um, how the soil is just so important when it comes to culture and change and yeah, all that? Uh, we're not we're not arborists, but my daughter does have a peach tree. And the reason that we have a peach tree, she has a peach tree in the backyard that has never produced a peach. <laughs> so she's that's what that's the tree she chose but my, the big my idea, wife would tell you i planted 12 trees in the backyard and none of them have produced fruit so she, she's doing better than i am <laughs> yeah she's 0 for 1 and you're 0 for 12 right. um that's not exactly doing better but i guess it is the <laughs> um the thing about it is uh, our big image is that what we see let's say on sunday morning are the leaves and the fruit what you see if you work at the church are the branches and the tree trunk. What matters the most is what's under the grass and in the dirt, in the soil, the roots uh, that produce that will lead to the fruit. If the dirt is toxic, the fruit will be poisoned. If the dirt is healthy, you will produce let's see, good fruit. And so that, that's the idea. And now here's the other idea connected to this, Matt. And that is, you can't see what's in the dirt. And most of us can't look at dirt and know if it's healthy, other than if it's got black, if it's black, it's got worms in it, and feels moist, we think it's probably pretty good. And, yeah. you know, we, we really don't know. Um, but um it takes expertise and it takes time to recognize what is actually in the dirt, under the soil, under the grass, what is invisible in a church. And that is influencing more of what's going on in a church uh, than anything else. Now, you can, can you still hear me? I just had a funny sound in my AirPod. Okay. Um, and it, it's going to take expertise, and it's going to take some honest questions and answers to get to the point where you can see what's going on in the soil. So Laura and I developed a thing called the Tove Tool, and it's a set of questions that um, that groups can ask, churches can ask. They have to ask these in safety for the purpose of learning, not for the purpose of finding out who said what and who's critical of our church, and let's get rid of these people who don't agree with us. But um, we believe that the questions that we ask around the topic of Tove can lead to good conversations that will precipitate the major needs that a church has if it's going to work in the direction of spiritual formation, transformation, and character formation. Um, and so it's nothing other than an opportunity to have honest, genuine conversations that can precipitate uh, awareness and illumination of significant needs in the church. That should be really easy, right? Uh, no. Okay, I, no, I, but I would say this, uh, you can't do it in a hurry. I would say it should take at least a year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Take some breaks answer some questions and see what what happens it's going to take a while 
And you you can't take the test and then say, okay, we're gonna now we're gonna focus on part three. I think you have to take the test and see what happens in the group and then say, you know, we're gonna have to start right here. Yeah. We're gonna have to start yeah. with honesty and transparency because we can't get anywhere until people feel safe enough to answer these questions. So all right. And kind of looking at that tool, I like how you started off right away in the book. You talked about three pivotal priorities in transforming a church. And I tove character, tove power, tove example. Why those three? I mean, there there seems like a lot you could have picked or different directions you could have gone. What how did you land at those three and why do you think they're the main main important things? Well, I th I think the secret to a Tove culture in a church is not, uh, let's say, you know, isn't it, uh, one of the main business guys said, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, all right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, culture is more important than strategy. Strategies will do some things for you, but the culture will, will determine what you can do. And I thought to myself, you know, what forms culture is character of people. If you don't have good character, you can't get a good culture because toxic characters produce toxic cultures. That's all there is to it. Uh, we, we don't have to name names, but um, it's not hard to figure out some people you say, oh, they, the church culture there or the culture at that business it's going to be corrupted because that guy or that woman is just crazy. All right. So I believe that uh, I thought character was the, was the foundation of it all. We need to focus on forming Christian culture in our churches and having examples of Christian character that we can draw on. So those were two of the top three and power is in the middle only because it's the test case. If you have character and example, uh, you'll find out in how the power is used. I've often said this. If you don't notice who has power at your church, you've got a Tove church. If you know who has power at your church, you've got some work to do. It's like referees in a basketball game or umpires in a baseball game. If you walk away from a baseball game, and you're talking about the umpires, I can guarantee you it's because they were um, bad. We don't talk about good umpires. We don't talk about good referees at a basketball game. We only talk about referees when they make mistakes. When power is talked about, it's because it's been abused. Yeah. When power is not talked about, it's because it's invisible. And invisible power is a sign of good character by people who can be good examples of the Christian life. So that was sort of the priorities of a Tove culture is one in which people focus on the formation of Christian character and have examples of people who live the Christian life the way it ought to be lived. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think that was a pretty. I think that was a pretty good answer myself. <laughs> oh, that was that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, part two of your book, you, you really get down the practical stuff. I, I really liked. Um, it kind of gives you the the necessary steps that you need to take to to address um, address the character and the culture stuff that's in 
in the body of Christ. And you mentioned three different things, um, building a coalition, taking it one step at a time. And then you mentioned earlier, creating pockets of Tove. Can you kind of walk us through some of those practical steps yeah. of what it takes to correct a church culture? And before and these we, are, get, before we yeah, get there, yeah. excuse me for just hey, one minute. I want to say, like, we really appreciate you coming at this because Matt and I would both consider ourselves kind of theologians by nature. And I'd say that about you, too. And typically we're thinking very theolo theologically big picture, like I'm a great big picture visionary guy, but not so much at actually doing the work later. And, you know, that's what I really liked about these two books is not only do you paint the big picture, the visionary or reimagine what it's supposed to look like, but you give the practical, the practical teaching mm -hmm. on actually how to get there. And that's really rare to get great theology in a book and to get some practical, here's the steps that we get to take that. So that's a hard so, one. I don't I, know I that need... Matt and I have ever quite been successful at connecting those dots. So we <laughs> give you a lot of credit there. Uh, I, we need you to be um, writing the endorsements. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> the thing about it is uh, you have to kind of think pragmatically. All right, we, we want to change a church. A church wants to change. In fact, we define change shift and transformation differently but uh, we want our church to be transformed into a tove culture and we've got toxicities jumping around here and we need to get rid of them what do we have to do well the tendency for you two guys and me as theological types and me as a professor is to teach a class or preach a series of sermons all right or come up with some good ideas well, that's not how cultures are formed, right? Cultures are formed over time by people who make decisions, who have relationships with one another, who form policies. And before long, something is living in the organization that holds it together and you can't quite figure out what it is. So I thought to myself, how did Jesus form that kingdom coalition in Galilee? You know, he started with just a couple of people. So that's sort of the foundation for this. Uh, I didn't get into this because I don't like to use Jesus as having um, theories about how to, to do some things. I mean, I know the things he did, but to make it a theory and then all people say, this is the way Jesus taught. No, he didn't teach a theory on how to do these things. Right. But right. But this is how cultures form. This is how good churches form. This is also how bad churches form. They build a coalition. And it starts with one, two, three, four people sitting around having coffee or having a beer or talking after pizza and chatting about something. And then that leads to something else. And before long, you've got two months later and you have four people who have talked about these things and they don't know who said what but they've come to some basic agreements on what to do. And that was ownership. That idea is ownership. But then you want to expand this. And then how do you expand it? You have to expand it not by imposing the ideas of those four people on the next eight people so that you have 12. You have to bring them to the table and listen to their ideas so that they can own it and they can contribute to the vision and to the coalition. 
And then I just kind of fleshed that out a little bit more and said, over time, uh, you're going to have to start building a, a bigger consensus to where there's ownership by the church. Here's what I learned. I was teaching a class at Northern Seminary, and it was a I can't remember what the class was on. It had nothing to do with Tov. But I, I began every day with a devotional about Tov. And I was talking about church culture. And lo and behold, about Wednesday of a cohort, which is a five-day class, a student in the back, his name is David. He says, I have a PhD in organizational transformation. I went, oh, no. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get lectured here by somebody who knows a lot more about what I'm talking about than, than, I, than I do. And he says, look, he says, you've got all the right ideas and all the wrong terms. And I thought, what do you mean? And then he, he told me, he says, we don't use any of your Tove terms or Bible terms, but you're, you're coming up with the right ideas that we talk about in organizational transformation. But he says, I do have one idea for you. And he pointed me to a book by Edgar Schein, which is the definitive textbook on organizational culture and leadership. And he said, it is standard in organizational transformation that when an organization wants to be transformed and is committed to it, it that it will take seven years to form a new culture. And so he said, this is a long-term process of change. And that was very influential. But to me, it also meant when we build the coalition, we can't expect to have a Bible study one week, three people the next week, 25 people the next week. At the end of the month, we've got everybody in the church agreeing with us. That's not how it works. That's not ownership. That's imposition, and it's top-down leadership. So uh, I've talked to some pastors, and one of the pastors who wrote the foreword, John Rosensteel, went through this in a process in a church in Portland, and it took him eight years to get to where they had weeded out the toxicities and worked up into the Tove-type stuff. Another pastor uh, that I know told me that he worked for five years with the major leaders in the church before they went public. Uh, it was a five-year on-ramp time of building a vision and ownership by people in the church before they went public. So here's here's the big lesson. The culture that's in a church took, let's say you're in a church, and let's say the church is 30 years old. It took 30 years to get the culture that that church has. You can't just change that church culture. Firing a toxic pastor does not change the culture of the church. The toxic culture of the church created the opportunity for that kind of toxic pastor to get the job. So it's going to take a lot of work. You have to work at weeding out the problem, the toxicities, which is hard work. And then you have to do the very things that led to that kind of culture that you had. And it took a lot of time, a lot of relationships, a lot of discussions, a lot of decisions, a lot of mistakes, a lot of wonderings. Should we stop and just quit? All those things were involved in building the original church culture, and it'll take all those things. So I, I want people to be realistic. This is not a six-week uh, program, uh, or let's say we got 11 chapters, 11-week program to change your church. That's not what this is. Right. So I wanted to get my highlighter out there when you went through that. I'm a 
I'm a market up kind of guy. And uh, that was, that was very clear and concise on the firing the pastor. There was a problem from the beginning, if that's the case. And yeah, it take time. I, I think that hits it right on the head. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the kind of last part of your book or, or middle to the last part three is what I would call the more theological part of the, the book. And you kind of go through those pivotal powers, nurture, congregational culture, Holy Spirit, and grace. Can you talk about, uh, again, like we're, Matt and I, and really Expedition 44, our foundation is really theological. So can you just kind of dive in a little bit to maybe more of the theology of the book and how you got there? Yeah. Okay. I, I want to emphasize when we, I started with nurture congregational culture. And again, we, we tinkered with different uh, orders to the chapters way more than uh, it created as much confusion as it created clarity. So our editor really helped us by saying, let's group them in three. Yeah, and we didn't have enough. So I had to add another chapter, but I think people need to recognize the power of a congregation's culture. And I don't think this is recognized for what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go to some churches and, you know, and I've in the last 20 years, since I wrote Jesus Creed and started traveling around the United States, and other parts of the world to speak, I've been in a lot of churches and first impressions aren't that important, but they are still first impressions and they can be very powerful. Some churches that you walk into, you say, there's something, there's something really good going on in this place. You know, Chris and I have been in dozens of churches, hundreds. And at times we walk away and we say, if we lived in this town, we would be very comfortable in this church. Now that's on the basis of one time. And it's it's dangerous to make that that presumption because people can make big impressions. But I think we need to recognize the power of a culture. And this was a part of the Tove book. The culture creates, let's say, a church creates a culture that determines whether people fit in that culture and has the power to make people who fit into that culture. That Those are really important ideas, is if your church is toxic, it has the capacity to make you a toxic person. Even if you don't want to be, you become complicit in the system. If you work for Mr. Rogers and you went to his office every day, five days a week, you would not be able to be a mean person. That culture of that office by Mr. Rogers was the kind of culture that made you a person like Mr. Rogers because he created that kind of culture around himself. And I think we need to recognize the power of our churches in forming people that fit into that culture. And no church culture is perfect. So therefore, every church culture has its toxicities. And if you start fitting into the toxicities, you're going to have problems. All right, so that's one. A second thing is, um, and I, I wondered where to put this. I, I believe that people do not change. And we're talking about transformation. People do not change simply because they reason their way into a better way of thinking, 
and therefore they're going to live a different way. Those kinds of changes that are deep transformation, that are lifelong, that are pervasive in our being, can only happen as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit. So preach the Holy Spirit as attending the ways of transformation. And uh, then the third one is grace. Um, and I wanted to bring this in because sometimes it gets neglected and sometimes it gets assumed, but I just wanted to make it clear that all of this happens because of the grace of God. The grace of God in Christ, the grace of God in redemption, the grace of God in sanctification, the grace of God in relationship building, the, the grace of God in coalition forming that leads to unity. All these things are the result of God's grace. It is not the result of our efforts. Even though a book like this does emphasize the things you could do, we wanted it to be a lasting message that you're not going to get anywhere with this stuff if you think that this is a program that you can put into your computer and spit out a good character in Christians. This is something where you pray, you, you wait on the Holy Spirit, you recognize that you are in need of God's transforming powers if you want to make changes in your church, transformation changes. Yeah. So. That's really good. Um, you mentioned earlier the Tove tool. That was one of my favorite parts of, of the book, uh, flipping through that. And um, so I was just going to ask you if you would dive into that maybe just a little bit more um, before we start wrapping things up. What are, what are like some of the categories that you're looking at in that? What's the, uh, what's the purpose, I guess, kind of behind it and the things that you're analyzing in, in your culture, like any specifics? Okay. When I was in college, I read a book by a guy named Larry Richards called Creative Bible Teaching. I don't, I don't know that I never hear anybody mention Larry Richards anymore. But it was a it was a book that taught me realism and realities rather than theology and theories. And so if he said uh we need to be holy, that's a nice idea. Uh, but what does it mean about, let's say, sexuality? What does it mean about work ethic? What does it mean about honesty? And so all of a sudden now, it gets realistic. So he taught me to be realistic. So I thought, all right, in the Tove book, we emphasized empathy. Uh, one of the trademarks of a toxic church is it has a, has a narcissistic pastor. A narcissist major characteristic, or one of them, is they lack empathy. They're so self-centered that they can't empathize with other people, let alone sympathize. So I thought, what are some questions we can ask about empathy that might lead a church to say, you know, ask a group of people who work in, let's say, um, let's say you've got 25 people who are involved in your church's Sunday school program. All right, bring them in and ask questions like this. Is um, is our church characterized by empathy, especially for the vulnerable? And then, of course, you're going to have to define empathy, which is to feel with someone, to 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 sense uh, that you're with them, to, to have feel the emotions that other people feel. Are women treated with empathy? Now, yeah. 
you can't ask men this question. Men will say, yeah, yeah, we're pretty good at this. Ask the women. Ask the women what they think. Ask the vulnerable what they think. Are persons of color treated with empathy? White people, white guys don't get to answer this question. You got to ask Latin Americans, African Americans, Asian Americans, uh, do you do you think that we have empathy for you? Are persons from other cultures and ethnicities treated with empathy? By the time you get to the fourth question, you're going to have some pretty good answers. Mm -hmm. Are persons with less education treated with empathy? You know, people who haven't been to college know by the way things are framed and talked about that they've not been to college. Do pastors recognize this when they're talking? Do they assume a college education? Are persons of less income treated with empathy? When you have a big event at your church, do you have to spend $75 to be able to participate? And do people who don't have $75 have an opportunity to come in a way that doesn't shame them? All right. Are pe persons of less skill treated with empathy? You know, some people in your church want to participate in the choir. They're not the best of singers, but they can blend in with someone next to them who will cover their voice. How are they treated? You know, do you say, you know, uh, you're not doing very well today. You know, you got to work on your voice or how do you do it? Do you listen to such persons in order to expand your inclusiveness? Do such persons say they are listened to? Ask them that question. Do you feel like you were heard? Is, is your church characterized by self-centeredness and a lack of empathy for others? You know, these are asking largely the same question. I think if you ask this, and there's one more, when people are let go or fired or they resign, is their memory erased and are they demeaned in a routine manner by those above you or around you? Is there now a customary negative narr narrative about such persons, All right? If you ask all 11 of those questions, to all your Sunday school program, you're going to have some answers that you may have to answer about. And then you have something you think, you know, we're not doing as well on empathy as we need. We need to work on this. And then you go through truthfulness and people first and all the major characteristics of a Tove culture. And I think you'll, you'll say, we've got some things in our church to work on. We've discovered some things we didn't know about. But I believe that you have to use this tool in a way that the people who answer those questions are completely safe to ask to, to answer them the way they want yeah and if you don't do that then you don't really want to know and my daughter knows she knows some people who were involved in a church that's pretty that was pretty successful at the time that when they took a workplace uh survey they got a pay raise if they answered all the questions in a certain way, you know, but that, so in other words, it didn't help that church at all to take that survey. So, okay. That's a long way. So good. I mean, I'm, I'm holding back because I've got about a thousand questions that I, I want to go to, but we don't have that time. And I just got to say like, everybody needs to read the book. We, we, um, I'm the president of Covenant Theological Seminary, Matt's on staff there too, and uh, we do different gatherings that are basically conferences, and sometimes there's graduations with them and everything else, 
And this last one was out in California and we invited John Bevere to come. And we, there's usually a pretty hefty stipend we pay for the, the bigger names like this. And he said, I don't want any money. I just want a chance to promote my latest book, which was The Awe of God, you know, and that's where most people are going to start rolling their eyes or whatever, you know. And he goes, but, but just hear me out. He goes, I really believe that if everybody in the church read this book, it would change the, the church. And I read the book and I'd agree with him. I'd say it was amazing. Now, that being said, when I look at your two books on sort of reimagining church, as Matt and I have, have retitled it, I really, I really think that if we could get these, this set of books into everybody's hands in churches, our church culture or dynamic would at least be on the journey or on the road of getting it to a better place. And I mean, last year when your book came out, the first thing Matt did was gave it to all the elders at his church and said, you've got to read this. And uh, well, unfortunately, you. you know, as, as, as big of advocates as Matt and I are for you and the books you've written, like we can't make people read the book. What, what, no. uh, what do you do? Where do you go? I mean, if, if we could put a book in everybody's hand and say, read it across the church. I mean, I think that would have some amazing results. Yeah. You know, I'm not a Mr. Rogers kind of guy. I've, uh, <laughs> but you wrote I've, about him. I've been a fly uh, in the ointment. I've been uh, a stinger under the skin. Uh, and that's sort of been one of the things that I think God has called me to do. I mean, I can be peacemaking too. Yeah. Um, but um, so I write when I think I have something to say that isn't being said. All right. So I expect to get under the skin. I wrote a book called King Jesus Gospel because I think the four spiritual laws is not the gospel of the New Testament. In fact, I know it's not. It's not in the New Testament. Sorry. One of our favorite so, books by you, by yeah. the way. So, uh, but I got under the skin of people and I've, I've had people write me some pretty nasty letters about it. And I'm thinking, you know, first Corinthians 15 is pretty clear to me. And that's what that's what this is all based on. And I think Jesus preached the gospel, so I'm I'm gonna stick with what I've written. Yeah. Um so um but and so I, I think sometimes because I I am I have sort of a prophetic voice at times, I think I can get under the skin of people, but I would say um ask people to give the books a chance. There's there's nothing abrasive about these books, either one of them. There's nothing really abrasive about King Jesus Gospel or Kingdom or Kingdom Conspiracy. I that's that's got some abrasive side to it. I mean, I was really pushing against the way some people understand Kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, but by and large, you know, give it a chance. Uh, ask yourself the question: uh, Why are churches toxic today? And and I think if you ask that question, what are the marks of a toxic pastor? You're going to come pretty close to what we have in a church called Tove. And if you're going to ask about how do you transform a church culture, you're going to come pretty close to what's in Pivot. And so give it a chance. I, I, I would like churches to give it a chance. Awesome. Yeah, it's such a good book. Um, I guess last question for you. If you were to uh, hope for one, just one thing to be changed as a result of your of your writing and on this topic, um, what would it be? What's, what's like, what's like the center thing that you would really like to see, um, like change in the church right now? 
Um, I would like us to, now look, I'm a seminary professor. Uh, I would like us to transform, revolutionize what we do from the ground up in a church. Uh, and I think, I think we do some of this stuff. Even in bad churches, we are doing some of this stuff. So it's this isn't a, like nobody's doing this. Now, people who say that are just wrong. I would love for us to refocus and recalibrate our church life so that what we produce is Christ-likeness or Christian character, however you want to define it. And begin to think together of what we need to do. And I, if we can do this for five years, there are so many creative pastors, so many biblically alert leaders in churches, so many people in tune with what God can do in our world, that we could come up with new patterns that could reshape seminaries, it could reshape churches, um, and we could put some of this nonsense platforming of people in churches in our rearview mirror, and we start having pastors who have Christian character, who are forming Christian character in others. That's that's what I think we could do. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's so good. Um, I loved in uh, your book, uh, you mentioned, I think it was an Anglican church. It's set up in like a circle. Was that in in one of your chapters? Uh, maybe uh, it was one your daughter wrote um, that you were surprised that everybody was set up meeting face to face. Well, I've been in churches church. that were in the round. Yeah. Like I yeah. remember being at Rob Bell's church. I've been in more than one like this. So yeah. uh, I think that had to be a story told by Laura. But yeah, I think it probably was face to face. Yeah, face to face stuff is very important. Yeah, and it kind of. Uh, I think she was mentioned how she liked it because it took away the uh the stage yeah, <laughs> mentality yeah. and yeah yeah I think that that that's beautiful. We do our worship nights in the round at our church yeah. and it's it's just uh it's just powerful to kind of all be on the the same level and uh yeah yeah it's tough. So anyways, uh thank you so much for coming on. Um thank is you, there anything Matt and Ryan. that you would um like to pitch to our audience tell tell them about what you're working on or uh promote uh of how they can keep up with you or anything before we let you go well i'm on a Substack, twitter uh facebook threads i like threads but it's it's growing slowly uh but um i'm i'm doing an everyday bible study books on every book of the new testament that are daily opportunity for daily reflections on scripture daily Bible reading, and I'm writing a book on Jesus and the Pharisees, and I don't I don't know when I'm going to be done with it, but I'm having a lot of fun, yeah. a lot of That's work. Great. Yeah. I bet. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for these books. They're, uh, well, thank I would you. Say they're definitely a treasure for the, for the church, and I just encourage everyone in our audience, whether you're um, in pastoral leadership or leadership at your church or, or, I mean, just if you're a Christian, buy these books. <laughs> if you oh, go to church, you. I mean, they're, yeah. they're phenomenal. Um, it really is, um, is great. And so thank you, Dr. McKnight for your kingdom work. And we, uh, we really appreciate you and all that, um, uh, that God has used you for, um, 
do do this. So. Thank you very much. Great to be with you guys again. Yep. May God bless you and keep you.